Hello, fellow kids, and welcome back to What is Politics? Speaking of fellow kids, there's been a lot of debate in leftist and liberal echo chamber, nursery school, social media burbles about class reductionism versus race reductionism, and whether it's more important to focus on economic inequality versus identity politics struggles. Now, over the next couple of episodes in this series, I'll be arguing that the whole reason that discriminatory cultural hierarchies like racism and patriarchy exist in human beings in the first place is specifically for the purposes of economic exploitation and resource competition. That's why these systems evolved in the first place. That's why we have the tendency to have in-group, out-group discrimination, which and we'll talk about studies to this effect next episode. What this means is that the whole idea of addressing cultural inequalities without addressing economic inequalities barely even makes sense. At the same time, one of the biggest obstacles to addressing economic inequalities is the existence of those cultural hierarchies which divide us and prevent us from forming the coalitions that we need in order to equalize either form of hierarchy. So at the end of the day, you really have to tackle economic hierarchies and cultural hierarchies at the same time because they're both part of one system of economic exploitation via cultural discrimination, even though that's not always immediately obvious. And as usual, we'll be looking at contemporary and historical and anthropological examples of this. Also, in case the word hierarchy is too abstract for some people, it means that some people get to dominate others. And because it's a show about politics, and the word politics means decision-making in groups, we're specifically interested in decision-making hierarchies, where one person gets to boss around another person, whether it's a patriarch, a capitalist boss, a lord, or a slave owner. But first, before I get into that stuff, what I want to do in this episode is a little thought experiment to illustrate what I mean when I say that culture comes from material conditions and that cultural hierarchies exist for the purposes of economic exploitation. And this thought experiment is about what happens if you try to address a cultural hierarchy, specifically patriarchy, without changing the practical conditions that generated that cultural hierarchy in the first place. So we need to do a little recap. In episode 7, I talked about immediate return hunting and gathering societies, and that's a specific category of hunting and gathering societies who are extremely egalitarian, including having gender egalitarianism, meaning men and women have relatively equal political power, meaning decision-making power, and this is translated into equal status, power, freedom, wealth, all the good stuff. And we saw that most of these societies have farmer and pastoralist neighbors who have a strong degree of male domination and patriarchy. And we saw that the big reason for this big difference in terms of the power of women was the practical conditions that those particular hunting and gathering societies and their farmer and pastoralist neighbors live in. Men who want to dominate women in an immediate return hunting and gathering society just don't have any practical means to do so. Any woman being bullied can just pick up and go live somewhere else without suffering any big loss of income or food or of quality of life. And it's easy for women to go form large coalitions of all the women in the camp, which they can call on to defend their rights and ostracize any bully that's trying to harass them or take away their rights. And women can also rely on their male relatives to physically defend them if need be. And all that freedom and power is just the practical result of the immediate return hunting and gathering economy, where no one is tied to any particular piece of property or land. Meanwhile, in those neighboring patriarchal pastoralist and farming communities, women are much more restricted in how they can respond to bullying. Women don't have any male relatives to defend them, and they're much more socially isolated and have a much harder time forming coalitions of women to defend and promote their interests. And the reason for this is a combination of people being tied to a plot of land, or else a particular herd of animals for their survival, plus something called patrilocal postmarital residence, which means that women go and live with their husband's family at marriage. 
which means that all the men in the village grew up together since birth, and all the adult women are strangers and outsiders from other villages. And the reason that these societies choose patrilocal postmarital residence is because it's a good way to organize your society for effective self-defense if you're subject to frequent attacks or raids from neighboring villages or pastoral bands. As a result of this practical situation, being tied to specific property for subsistence plus social isolation that results from patrilocal postmarital residence where all the women come from outside villages and all the men grew up together, women have very low bargaining power relative to men. And the result of that is that in the more extreme versions of patriarchy, women do all of the hardest work, and they're generally oppressed and economically exploited for the benefit of men, kind of like household slaves, while men hang out all day with their buddies, and they only do the fun work. And in that episode, episode 7, go watch it, it's good, we also saw how those conditions don't just shape power relations between men and women, but they also shape the ideology of gender in those cultures. Without coalitions of women to advance their point of view, men's point of view goes unchallenged, and that point of view becomes the dominant one for men and women alike. In a more broad sense, environment and material practical conditions determine culture, but culture ends up becoming a part of the practical conditions in a sort of feedback loop. And keep in mind that the whole reason that human beings have culture in the first place is to help us adapt to different environments. So let's get this thought experiment on the road and let the cartoon begin. Imagine you're a woman in one of these patriarchal societies that does patrilocal residence and you want to end this miserable patriarchy and you desperately and passionately want to enjoy equality with men. Imagine that you figure out a formula to make a magic potion made out of a special pink berry that will erase patriarchy from everyone's hearts and minds. So you go make a bunch of this potion in secret, and you slip it into the water supply overnight when everyone's sleeping. And then the next day, after everyone's had breakfast, the whole village is suddenly pink-pilled. All the men feel ashamed and embarrassed that they've been treating their wives and sisters and mothers like garbage, and they apologize and pledge to now and forever live as equals with their sisters. Meanwhile, women lose their internal sexism that tells them that they deserve to be subservient. All the Jordan Peterson archetypes about men being rational and women being chaotic vanish from everybody's minds. And from that day on, men and women now share the burdens of labor equally. Women can touch weapons, women can eat at the same time as men, patriarchy is over. So patriarchy, donezo. Except the practical conditions that led to women having low bargaining power in the first place, being tied to land or herds for subsistence, and patrilocal postmarital residence, those things stay the same. So we still have a situation where you can't just get up and leave if someone's bothering you or trying to oppress you. And you still have a situation where all the men in the village grew up together and all the women are strangers from different villages with very few social connections between them. Well, who cares about all this pesky material and economic stuff? Sexism was the problem, and now sexism has been eliminated, and utopia is here. Well, the problem is that you didn't do anything about all the conditions that led to sexism and patriarchy in the first place, which means that they'll just come back over time. At first, everything's equal. But then very soon, you'll start to have conflicts between husbands and wives, which you'll have in any society, even in the most gender egalitarian immediate return hunting and gathering societies. Even in same-sex couples where gender difference isn't an issue, people have conflicts. In a horticultural society where nuclear families are tending small plots of land to survive, you'll tend to have more conflict. Imagine working with your spouse for 12 hours a day, every day. And the propensity for conflict goes up when things get more difficult, like if there's been a bad harvest year and people aren't getting enough food or enough leisure or social time to be happy and fulfilled. 
And we see in our own society how divorce rates skyrocket in economic downturns among people who lose their jobs. Except in many agricultural societies, divorce is almost impossible. It means leaving your livelihood, your plot of land, and you have nowhere to go. Your parents or other relatives probably can't afford to take you back. Leaving means starving to death or becoming some kind of bandit. And when things are hard, what human beings tend to do, because we're awful selfish gremlins, is that our minds start making up reasons for why we're unfairly doing too much unpleasant work, and why the other person isn't doing enough. And that's especially so in hard times. So the woman will be thinking things like, I have to work hard in the garden all day, and I'm tired because I just gave birth a few weeks ago, and I'm breastfeeding, and I need to eat more, and I need more breaks, and I'm doing the same amount of work as my husband, but he's not breastfeeding. He should be doing more, and I should be doing less, and I should be eating more than he does. And the husband will tend to think things like, I'm working so hard, and my wife keeps taking breaks, using the baby and breastfeeding as an excuse. I see what she does. It's not that hard at all. I have bigger muscles. I need more food to replenish my muscles. And my work contributes way more to our food than her work does. It's not fair that she gets so many breaks. And we eat the same amount of food, but I should be eating more than she does because I'm stronger and I contribute more. And he's not necessarily being sexist. He's not generalizing about women. He's just talking about his own wife. It's just two people not getting what they need out of life, each thinking that they deserve more than what they're getting. And they're rationalizing their desires. And their point of view is based not just in their own self-interest, but also based on not having the experience of knowing what it's like to be in the other person's shoes. And then after a long, hard day, the men who all grew up together and who've known each other since birth get together and start talking, and they see that they all have similar gripes about their wives. My wife keeps saying that she's tired and taking breaks also, but I'm digging up twice as many yams as she is. Why is she so tired all the time? It can't be that hard to breastfeed. What are these women always whining about? Why is it that all our wives are so selfish? And what started out as an individual conflict or a series of individual conflicts becomes generalized to a whole gender conflict. Because that's what humans do. We discriminate against outgroups. We attribute negative characteristics to them, and we attribute positive characteristics to our own group. And psychology experiments dating back since the late 1960s show that we're really quick to discriminate against outgroups, but that those outgroups don't have to be a race or a gender. They can be absolutely anything. People with red hats versus blue hats. People labeled Group A or Group B. People from opposing football teams. And these studies show that this discrimination starts as soon as the groups are defined. And it intensifies when there's competition or conflict that gets involved. And we'll talk about this more in the next episode. In this case, the in-group is men, but also men from the same lineage. And the out-group is women, but women from outsider lineages. So there are two orders of discrimination going on. Meanwhile, among the women, you have the same complaints. They get together after work, and they complain about the men. They don't have to breastfeed. They're not depleting all of their energy-producing milk. They don't have to give birth. They are so selfish. They don't recognize that we need more breaks and we need to work less than they do so we can take care of our infants, which are their own children. And gender identification intensifies, and stereotypes proliferate, and tensions mount. And one day, a man and his wife are arguing and screaming at each other, and the woman hits the man over the head with a metal pot, knocking him out. And all of his cousins and brothers and uncles and nephews, which are his neighbors, hear this, and they rush in to defend him. And they see their relative on the floor, and some of them retaliate with force, beating the woman. Now all the women in the village quickly understand that if they get into serious conflict with their husband, that he will be backed up by all the men in the village. At the end of the day, he always has the advantage of force because his coalition is huge and she doesn't really have that much of a coalition. 
And then, on another day, there's another conflict between another husband and wife. And the reverse happens. A man hits his wife. Now, some people will rush to her aid, but not as many. No one knows her that well. And the other women are afraid to rock the boat and take her side, thus incurring the wrath of their husband and of all his cousins and allies. They understand that they're in a weaker bargaining position than the related men who form the core population of the village, and they won't be as willing to take risks unless they are directly involved, or unless passions are extremely inflamed. And if women try to form broad coalitions to counterbalance the natural coalition of all the related men, they'll find that they're having a hard time of it. A lot of the women are afraid to join, or some of the ones who do end up joining are actually snitches who end up reporting their activities to the men, because they know that the men are a more powerful force, and they calculate that it'll be beneficial to them to be in their good graces. After a few of these conflicts, the men realize that they can win more or less any conflict with their wives. And once they realize this, they start imposing their view of the world and of what's fair on women. I have more muscles, I need more food, I contribute more, so I'm going to eat more. And that's that. Try to stop me. All my boys will back me up. And the men prevent the women from gathering together, because they know that women gathering together means more complaining about men and more challenges to their authority. And eventually, whether it's a generation later, or a hundred years later, or five hundred years later, either once the pink pill generation dies out, or once there are enough droughts and periods of hardship to really trigger more intense in-group, out-group discrimination and competition, you end up right back where you started from. The women are doing all the work and eating leftovers, and they're household slaves, while the men are all hanging out with their buddies all day long and then doing some hunting and some fishing. And the reason for that is because material conditions generate ideas and ideology, and because culture, at its core, is a way that humans adapt to our environment. So, if you're a woman in one of these societies, and you want to improve your life and achieve equality with men, you still might want to change hearts and minds. The metaphorical pink pills, they're very useful. They did a lot of help at the beginning, and which in real life would be protests, public relations, education campaigns, and that stuff does have an effect. But you also want to have a long game, a laser focus on the material and practical conditions that generated that problem in the first place so that you don't end up right back where you started. Is there a way that you can change past your local residents? That should be your first goal, and you want to start campaigning and lobbying for that and targeting that first and foremost while you're doing your consciousness-raising campaigns. And if your village is still under attack, then you're going to have a harder time ending patrilocal local residents because it's just the best way to defend against attacks. But there might be some other leverage points that you can identify that can improve women's bargaining power in your village. Like maybe you can arrange for women to do chores and work together in groups, which would make it easier to form female coalitions as a basis for some political resistance and advocacy. Or maybe you can get cell phones in the village so that women can text each other and have a social coalition that way. So when I came up with this thought experiment, I thought it was just a thought experiment. But then I did a little reading and I realized that there's a huge example of basically the same failed pink pill experiment happening in the real world today on a massive scale. China, specifically rural China, is notorious for having a strong preference for male babies. The birth of a son is seen as a gift and is celebrated. Meanwhile, the birth of a daughter is seen as a curse. The preference for male babies is so strong that some rural families notoriously practice female infanticide, resulting in a skewed male-to-female ratio in the population. And then starting in the 1980s, as wiener-revealing ultrascan sounds became more available, female abortion became extremely common, causing the male-to-female ratio to expand even more. 
as of 2019, you still have 114 females born for every 100 males in China. And the numbers are much more skewed in rural areas. Since the revolution in 1949, the Communist Party in China has been doing everything it can to combat this problem. First of all, gender equality is one of the staples of communist ideology. But also, having a huge population of young men destined to die unmarried can lead to all sorts of unrest and economic costs. Now, even though communists are supposed to be Marxist materialists, communist officials in China took a decidedly idealist approach to this problem. Via their monopoly on education and journalism and communications, the government did the equivalent of the pink pill. Millions and millions of young children went to school and learned about male-female equality and how sexism is a backward relic of the barbaric past. The Communist Party promoted women to all sorts of important positions to show by example that women are just as capable and powerful as men. And these sorts of education campaigns succeeded and managed to change all sorts of attitudes on all sorts of issues. Medical practices, religion, class, ideology, the Communist Party leadership. But when it came to male baby preference and degrading attitudes towards women and patriarchy, almost nothing changed at all. And as we saw, the problem eventually got worse as ultrasounds became common in the 1980s and people could get abortions instead of having to resort to infanticide. Now, in the late 1970s, some anthropologists started pointing out the very clear, obvious, and well-known, among peasants at least, reasons for why Chinese farmers hate daughters so much. And like in the pink pill example, it's all rooted in patrilocal post-marital resonance, which most rural Chinese practice. We don't know what the historical reason for why they initially adopted this practice, though it makes sense to assume that it was initially a means for organizing self-defense. But whatever the initial reason, it's been the practice for probably thousands of years. And even though self-defense is not an issue today, material conditions generate culture, and then culture often becomes part of the material conditions. So now that villages are all organized patrilocally, it would take some major disruption to change it. Whatever the initial reason for it, patrilocal residence has huge effects on gender relations, as we saw in our pink pill example. And note that patrilocal residence almost always goes hand in hand with patrilineal descent and inheritance, meaning that children born to a couple are considered to be part of their father's descent group and not their mother's. Descent group meaning things like your clan or your tribe or your family line. That's why for most people listening to this, you have your father's last name and not your mother's. It's a relic of patrilocal patrilineal practices. And always keep in mind that the main reason that descent groups like clans and tribes and family lines exist in the first place are as ways to collectively manage property. So immediate return hunter-gatherers who don't have property to manage usually don't have clans or tribes, and they trace descent through both parents, and married couples go live wherever they want. Or today, in most industrialized countries, now that family property is usually managed by nuclear families, since it isn't a fixed plot of land that owners live on or a herd of animals that needs to be in one place at one time, we no longer have clans or tribes, and children more and more take compound names or choose whether they're going to take their father or their mother's name, or the parents just choose. So to explain why patrilocal residence and patrilineal inheritance makes parents hate having daughters so much, let me read from a few articles on the subject, and I'll put them in the show notes in a bibliography. In recent years, Patrilocal residence has been singled out as one of the major reasons for women's continuing oppression in post-revolutionary China. Families have often been loath to endow a daughter with property or skills because of the near certainty that these resources will be alienated from the family itself, meaning that she's going to be giving all her resources to her husband's family and village that she'll be joining at marriage. Women are still seen as passing in marrying strangers who have yet to prove themselves or who are temporary residents who will soon be departing to get married. 
There is little incentive to recommend girls over boys for higher education or specialized training or to prepare them for increasing degrees of responsibility and leadership. The majority of Chinese brides enter their husbands' families and communities as strangers. At marriage, a young woman must establish her credentials in circumstances that may be far from welcoming. In contrast, most grooms continue to work and live in the environments they have always known. Patrilocal residence and patrilineal inheritance create an environment in which there is a significant advantage for sons over daughters. Villagers recognize that the skills of local daughters will be lost to her natal community when the daughters marry. The peasant view of daughters as, quote, excess baggage has lost, it would appear, little of its relevance in contemporary China. And from another article, among this population, parents must depend for support on their sons, not their daughters. The children that women raise, the fields they tend, and the elderly that they support belong not to their natal families, but to the families that they join as brides. And another article, in China, as in India, and that's another country with a huge skewed baby gender ratio. There is little or no pension support for the elderly in rural areas, and more than half of the rural elderly rely on transfers from children. For a long time, a son was your pension. Having a girl was wasteful. Even though son preference is not rational from the point of view of society as a whole, it is a rational choice for an individual. So, from the point of view of parents, daughters are a huge cost with no benefit. You spend all these resources raising her and feeding her, and then she goes off and brings all of her labor and her children and their labor to her husband's family for the rest of her life. And you get bupkis. Not even a letter. Not even a phone call. And the low status of women is compounded by the bargaining power situation for women, who are in a lose-lose situation throughout their lives. In their home village, where they grow up, they're resented because all the food and money they're investing in them is just going to vanish when they go off to get married. And then when they show up in their husband's village, where they will contribute economically and be a huge asset, they're total strangers with no allies. So they'll be at a huge bargaining power disadvantage and can easily be exploited. And exploited they are. In her quest to be accepted by her new family and village, a daughter-in-law typically contributes more to her parents-in-law than their actual children do. So women contribute the most, but are still treated the worst. As always, patriarchy is a system of economic exploitation, and it's still doing its job in China, even after 70 years of gender egalitarian education by a one-party government that controls every major ideological and cultural forming institution, a mega giant pink pill. And just like in my thought experiment, because the Chinese government didn't address the root of the problem, their pink pill was a total failure. But you do have areas of China where this problem of skewed gender ratios and extreme patriarchy has never really existed, or else has significantly improved recently. Now what's going on there as opposed to everywhere else in China? First of all, in the southwest of China, at the foot of the Himalayas, you have the Mosuo, also known as the Na ethnic group, who are matrilineal and where women have most of the positions of authority, and marriage barely exists. Now that's a whole other podcast episode. They've been matrilineal for hundreds of years, and this was the result of unusual political maneuvering among the noble class of the region, and we don't have time to get into that here. But it is important to note that with matrilocal residence and matrilineal inheritance, that equates to much more power for women, as we saw in episode 8 with the Haudenosaunee people in North America. In the 1970s, Anthropologist Norma Diamond noticed that in those areas of China where you had frequent political upheavals and natural disasters, resulting in frequent population movement, patrilocality was much less dominant. Many women remained in their home villages, and their husbands sometimes moved in with their mother's family, and therefore women were not at such a bargaining power disadvantage. 
Now, those parts of China where women's rights actually improved significantly over recent years and where the gender birth ratio has gone down to the natural rate are those areas where traditional practices have been disrupted by rapid industrialization and wage labor. For example, in Shenzhou and the surrounding areas, once ultrasounds were available, the male-to-female birth rate exploded to 124 boys for every 100 girls in 1982. And by 1987, it was 129 boys for every 100 girls. Now, reading from another article. Then something striking happened. The ratio dropped steeply. By 1996, it was 109.5. Soon after, it returned to the natural level. You do not have to look far for part of the explanation. Shenzhou is, it boasts, international necktie city of the 21st century, making 350 million ties a year, or 40% of the world's supply. That is a ridiculous amount of ties. Who needs all those ties? As well as huge quantities of gas stoves and cone diaphragms for speakers. Its factories offer plenty of jobs for daughters, allowing them to make a hefty economic contribution to the household. Across the country, manufacturers have frequently preferred female employees, regarding them as more careful and less troublesome. Young couples are more likely to live apart from relatives. Few parents can now count on a dutiful daughter-in-law caring for them, and many are noticing that daughters are doing a better job. Some even think that son preference may partially correct itself. The surplus of men has increased competition for brides, meaning families must buy ever more expensive housing to ensure their sons can marry, increasing the economic attractiveness of daughters. So ironically, because patriarchy is primarily about economic exploitation, women in patriarchal cultures are raised to be more obedient and meticulous and less prone to complaining or standing up for themselves and to have more endurance for suffering. And this makes them amazing wage laborers for owners and bosses to exploit instead of just their husband's family. So when wage labor and capitalism come to town, women have an advantage versus men in the wage labor market, where men are not so good at being exploited since they're used to being the exploiters and they have an attitude, and they're lazy, and they're not meticulous. As a result of this, women are able to bring home money to support their birth parents, and they're able to have more autonomy and independence from their husband's family. And the incentives for their birth family hating women start to disappear, while their bargaining power vis-a-vis -vis their husband's families increases. This was one of the things that Karl Marx liked about capitalism, and why he thought it was a progressive force in various ways. It disrupted some oppressive institutions, even as it created new ones. So now Chinese men and women are both exploited by their bosses, instead of just women by their husbands' families. Great job! And this disruption of patrilocality is the same reason that South Korea's problem of male birth preference, which used to be much bigger than China's, has almost totally evaporated over the last few decades. It's a much smaller country that industrialized much more homogeneously and rapidly. So, very often, cultural problems and cultural hierarchies are all about the material conditions and incentives, which sometimes include cultural and historical hangovers, which have become entrenched over time into new conditions. If you want to solve deeply entrenched cultural issues, like patriarchy and racism, you need to deal with the practical conditions that generate those issues, or else you're not going to get anywhere. In China, in order to solve the skewed birth ratio and the oppression of women, anthropologists have been proposing various material-based solutions for several decades now. The biggest one, of course, is get rid of patrilocal residents, which is easier said than done, as it would be a huge disruption to rural society. We saw earlier that it takes natural disasters and mass social conflicts, scale events, to disrupt it enough to make a difference. Other proposed solutions include implementing a social security system for rural Chinese, which would allow families with only daughters to be able to have support in old age so that they won't have the incentives to abort them. Now, that's also a really expensive solution with hundreds of millions of rural people to support. 
So chances are the Chinese government will still stick to the ineffective education and propaganda campaigns, and things will only really change as industrialization advances into rural areas. In our society, understanding how material conditions affect cultural problems has all sorts of applications, not only for things like eliminating racism and sexism, and we'll talk about the ways that racism and sexism in our society are and aren't related to economic realities past and present. But thinking about material and practical context is also crucial for things like designing legislation or planning strikes or political protests and mass actions. For example, legislators and tenants' rights organizations and labor groups often design laws that are supposed to protect tenants or low-wage workers. But if you aren't taking into account the material context of the landlord and tenant or employer-employee relationship, where the employers and landlords have such an enormous bargaining power advantage and practical advantage over employees and tenants, those laws end up being really ineffective, fancy toilet paper because they're just not enforceable. Lower-wage workers in countries without strong social safety nets are too scared to invoke their rights because they'll just get fired on some pretext, and tenants will get evicted, or their landlord will refuse to fix anything or make their tenants' life hell in various ways. So, to make these laws enforceable, you need extremely harsh punishments for landlords and bosses who violate those rules, or else, ideally, you need to change the context—a really strong social safety net. Or even better, to reduce the enormous wealth inequality between workers and owners that makes it so easy for them to abuse tenants or employees in the first place. Or you need to equalize owners and tenants so that everyone is an owner or everyone is a member of a cooperative. So take a look at the problems around you that you care about, whether it's low wages or racism or lack of access to healthcare, exploding rents or impending climate apocalypse, and think about the material and practical conditions that generate these problems and the incentives that lead to those problems, and what kind of changes to those conditions would help solve them. And as we'll see in the next episode, which will be a line-by-line -line critique of David Graeber and David Wengrow's articles on hierarchy and equality. Ignoring material conditions leads to ineffective politics, and also a right-wing view of the world, where hierarchy is naturalized and cultures are blamed for their deficiencies and for their own oppressive structures. And then after that, I'll be doing an episode that's similar to this episode, except it'll be about what would happen if you just eliminated racism with a magic brown pill. <laughs> In the meantime, while you're working out how to fix the world, if you feel that this podcast is making new galaxy brain connections in your formerly baby smooth brain, and that others would benefit from hearing it, please, please, please tell your friends and your social media friends and your parasocial friends about this podcast and this YouTube channel. It is extremely hard to get an audience in this podcast super saturated environment. If you're watching the video versions, please, please, please post these videos on Reddit. It's or anywhere else you can think of, but Reddit is really how I get almost all my viewers and listeners. And most political Reddit subs do not let you post your own material. Plus, I'm shadow banned from various subs like BreadTube for no reason that I can understand. So please post my stuff on there. And if you have contact with a popular podcast or YouTube person or president of the United States, someone who might be interested in this show, like you're on their Discord or whatever, please spread the word. It seems like a signal boost from someone with an audience is the main way to get heard in this environment. So please do that if you can. And in the meantime, I'll try to think of some crazy、uh, illegal publicity stunt to get me attention. Also, rate and review the show on iTunes.、It、takes five seconds and helps enormously with the evil algorithm of podcast fate. Like and subscribe with a bell on YouTube. 
And please don't hesitate to ask me any questions or make corrections. Criticism is how we learn. It's how we improve. And I enjoy it. You can write me on the video comments or at worldwidescroats at gmail.com. So I like to argue, but I'm, I'm actually listening to you, even though I'm, I'm being defensive and arguing. And also, if you have money to spare, please send me some of it via Patreon so that I can keep doing this. It really helps. And now that I'm doing a live video version of this, I have some equipment that I need to buy that would make it much less torture uh, to put these together for you and I could put them out more quickly. And note that I charge per episode and not per month, but you won't get charged more than 12 times per year maximum. And until next time, see ya!